Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure. Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. sing of arms and of a man his fate had made him fugitive he was the first to journey from the coasts of troy as far as italy and the lavinian shores across the lands and waters he was battered beneath the violence of the high ones for the savage juno's unforgetting anger and many sufferings were his in war until he brought a city into being and carried in his gods to latium from this have come the Latin race, the lords of Alba, and the ramparts of high Rome. And that, my friends, is the beginning of the Aeneid. Welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel. We are starting yet another epic, and this time we are entering the ramparts of the ancient empire of Rome. One of the greatest empires the world has ever known, an empire that has bequeathed us so much, particularly in the Western world, and still to this day, its echoes reverberate through our lives. My name is Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we are ready to get going. And in order to do this wonderful journey, we need our old pal, our one and only Homeric scholar, uh, archaeologist extraordinaire, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Hi. It's uh, it's good to do this with you. I can't wait. As you know, my love is of Rome, and so I can't wait to go through this. So we're doing the Aeneid. This is the the epic, the national epic of Rome. Let's talk a little bit about. Let's give the listener a little bit of a background of Rome and Roman history. So Rome was founded in 625 BC in the area known as Latium, which is a region in central West Italy where Rome is. Uh, it's the homeland of the Latin tribe. They're an Italic speaking people, the Italic people. That's an Indo-European language family and the Latins were one of those tribes. Um, the first period of history is known as the period of kings and it lasts from 625 to 510 BC. It's Rome was ruled by kings, some Etruscan as a matter of fact, and that's a, another fascinating um, culture and civilization that maybe we'll touch on at some point. Um, and around 510 BC, Rome enters its period of the Republic. It's when its Senate is established. And I said these echoes that reverberate through our age, we, we have our Senate. Our Senate is modeled on the Roman model. Um, so the Senate is established. The Senate, of course, uh, prioritizes the, the needs and wants of the wealthy. And so after a while, other forms of legislative bodies were created and the Concilium Plebis or the Council for the Plebs 
uh, that was for the common people. So you started to have more of the uh, interaction between the wealthy and the, the poor and the average. This is a representative government. So this is what's interesting. It's not a direct democracy. You elect someone to represent you. Again, echoes of what we have here in the United States of America. And the senators, just like we have now, were called senators. So they have about 500 years of that history. And then someone the world knows, a furlough by the name of Julius Caesar, comes to the fall. He's a powerful general. At this time and during this time period, you start to get kind of like we're experiencing now, this these um, accumulation of great amounts of wealth. So wealthy men begin to exert their force in ways outside to the republic, the republican form of government that they have. And they begin to vie for power in their own right. And Caesar was one of those. He vies for power and he takes power as a single leader, as what we call a Caesar, but as a as a ruler, a dictator. And we all know the story. He's assassinated, the Ides of March. We know the great Shakespeare play about it. There is a battle, a triumvirate. Principally, it becomes a battle between Octavius, uh, who is Octavius Caesar, uh, becomes Octavius Caesar, and Mark Antony. Uh, Octavius wins the day, and he becomes supreme emperor Caesar Augustus of Rome, and that is the age in which the Iliad is written. What Augustus ushers in as a dictator, no less, let's not forget that, so we, we lose a democracy, he le- lose our republic, but he preserves the republican structure, so it seems as if everything is the same. You have a senate, you have the, the plebeians, but you really have one man who rules all and is in control of all these things. Um, he do- the, It does issue an age of Roman expansion and Roman peace. You could travel from, the, from Africa to the the borders of Germany, you can travel from Spain to Israel. That's the, the breadth and scope of the Roman Empire. Um, there is also the great period of Roman writing, people like Ovid or Ovid and Catullus, and the man that we're going to be paying attention to because we're going to the Aeneid, and that's Virgil. So the Aeneid is the story, the epic story of how Rome was founded. It's the Roman mythology. There's still scholarly battles about how accurate the mythology is but just for our context we're talking about just the story and the mythology of the founding of rome um, virgil was depending on the sources from either a humble family or an ancient family but he certainly had the means to be educated he was and still is considered probably the greatest roman poet i think ovid certainly gives him a run for his money but virgil is extraordinary uh, and he's writing in the period as we mentioned, of the last part of the first century BC, right? He's writing at the very beginning of the Augustan age. And he even writes for Augustus. He's commissioned by Augustus to write these works. And, you know, these were read to Augustus in his lifetime. So this is the story of Aeneas. Now, Aeneas, we've encountered earlier in our other episodes when we talked about the Odyssey, and I should say the Iliad, and uh, from there, I think we hand the reins over to our Homeric scholar, Dr. Well, Gary, could you please take it from there? Okay. Um, Virgil was considered the greatest uh, Roman poet, um, even though, as you said, uh, Ovid, uh, you know, um, 
was contemporaneous, but he was younger than Virgil. Um, Ovid wrote great poems like the ones he collected in his Metamorphoses work. Uh, and then he wrote erotic poetry like Ars Armonia, uh, and um, which, uh, you know, angered uh, Augustus to the point where he banished him to uh, the small town on the Black Sea <laughs> where he lived out a miserable life. Um, he wrote erotic poetry, but uh, Virgil wanted to continue in the uh, epic poetry uh, tradition established by Homer. And um, he was actually commissioned by Augustus who wanted to create for the ancient Romans a national epic, just like the Greeks had a national epic of the Iliad, which celebrated the Greeks in a, in a fantastic way. Um, and uh, so he commissioned Virgil to do it. And so Virgil decided to um, uh, emulate Homer. And so what he did is he wrote his epic in the same uh, poetic style called Dactylic Hexameter Verse. Um, and he organized it just like um, Homer's works were organized into uh, 24 books, uh, or we would call them chapters. He didn't do it, but it was done by the Library of Alexandria in order to uh, study Homer, you know, in a scholarly way, and they enumerated every line, uh, which Homer didn't do. But now 12 is a sacred number, as I have been pointing out in this, in our uh, other podcast. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, I discovered that. Uh, so interestingly, Virgil organizes his epic into 12 books. Yeah, it's interesting. And they mentioned... Uh often that the first six books, it's almost reversed. The first six books mirror the Odyssey. The last six books mirror the Iliad. So yes. the Iliad came first. So it's interesting in that sense. <clears throat> and um, so uh, the version I have is a translation by John Dryden, who uh, you know, was a British uh, uh, poet, critic, and playwright and he was a poet laureate, and he lived from 1631 to 1700 A.D., uh, just uh, after the main uh, Renaissance period, which lasted from 1400 to 1600, basically, or the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. And uh, so he wrote a really long uh, introduction. You know, it's like uh, 30 or more pages long. Um, the, the version I bought of the book is published by Heritage Press of New York, which publishes, uh, you know, great works by different famous authors. And I didn't like the illustrations in it, so I covered them over with ancient Roman illustrations, mainly from Pompeii. And in my frontispiece is a famous uh, mosaic of uh, Virgil, and he's flanked by two muses. The muses were these nine goddesses of uh, inspiration that the ancient Greeks had. And the Romans adopted the Greek uh, pantheon, uh, although they had other gods. But 
uh, they adopted the Greek pantheon. And he's flanked by two uh, muses, which the uh, artist considered uh, most relevant to Virgil, who's sitting. He's wearing a toga, and he has uh, a scroll on his lap, you know, of, of the Aeneid. And on the left is the muse Cleo, the muse of history. And on the right is uh, the muse of tragedy, Melpomene. So it's a beautiful mosaic. And so that that's how I, I, I have seen that mosaic. It is beautiful. Yeah. And so um, throughout the book, I illustrated with ancient uh, illustrations. Um, and like you said, the Aeneid is a great national epic of ancient Rome. I mean, that's what... Uh, Augustus Caesar wanted to do. And it's considered one of the most important works of literature ever written. Uh, it was considered an essential part, was studied by uh, uh, ancient Roman, young ancient Romans, it was part of their schooling. Um, and then it stirred the imagination of uh, other great artists, and I'm quoting here from an introduction to a series of lectures by Elizabeth Vandiver from Whit Whitman College. And she said it uh, inspired imaginations of writers such as St. Augustine, Dante, Chaucer, Bruegel the Elder, Melton, Rubens, Tennyson, Ezra Pound, and T.S. Eliot. Um, and she says the Aeneid represents both Virgil's tribute to Homer and his attempt to reimagine and surpass the Homeric model, which I don't think he does. It uh, certainly presents a, uh, you know, uh, a, a wonderful poem. Well, you know my my leanings towards Rome. I will say this about the writing: I find now, of course, we're, I'm reading it in translation. Uh, I would love to uh, eventually someday read it in its native Latin, um, but the translations that I've found, I find his style more direct. It works for me. So uh, Virgil's style speaks to me more directly uh, than uh, Homer's. But uh, Homer is, of course, the he's the model upon which it's all based. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a moot point almost because um, it, one is the originator of the, of the format, which is Homer, and there's no no way to, uh, around that. Um, the other is taking his inspiration from that format. But uh, it's an incredible, it's just, it's just such a direct, it's such a forceful work. It's such a forceful work. Um, and yeah, the, the, the list of poets that you say it inspired, and, and they're countless, but that just that list alone is... And of course, all amazing. of them were inspired by Homer. So, uh, you know, Homer's the... Uh, original inspirer you know yeah he's i mean certainly um, he's the first voice on that there's no question but you know so again, anyhow, um, mm -hmm. she goes on to say you joined aeneas now who was aeneas aeneas is one of the princes of troy and he is mentioned in homer's iliad but he's not really discussed very much but uh so what uh, virgil did is take aeneas and um aeneas uh according to Virgil, escaped from Troy as Troy is falling to the Greeks. And uh, he says that uh, he took with him thousands of uh, Trojans, you know, which is an exaggeration, but anyhow, that's what he says. And um, they they sailed on ships. They, they 
built ships and they sailed in ships across the Aegean Sea. And uh, so anyhow, and she says, you join Aeneas on his long journey west from ruined Troy to the founding of a new nation in Italy. Uh, and that new nation is founded by Aeneas and his Trojans. Uh, and you see how Virgil weaves a rich network of compelling human themes. His poem, his poem is an examination of leadership, a study of the conflict between duty and desire, a meditation on the relationship of the individual to society and of art to life, and of a Roman's reflection on the dangers and allure of Hellenistic culture. Hellenistic culture means ancient Greek culture after the time of Alexander the Great. There is a, a let me let me actually on that. There's one of my favorite quotes from the Indian, uh, which talks about which I think speaks directly to this idea of the danger of the Greeks and what well, Virgil wanted to point out in terms of Roman piety. And it goes like this: Others will cast more tenderly in bronze their breathing figures. I can well believe, and bring more lifelike portraits out of marble argue more eloquently, use the pointer to trace the paths of the heavens accurately, and accurately foretell the rising stars. Roman, remember, by your strength to rule, all earth's peoples, for your arts are to be these, to pacify, to impose the rule of law, to spare the conquered, to battle down the proud. And so, in that sense, what, you know, obviously Virgil is saying is, okay, you guys can be really great at all your little arts, but at the end of the day, Rome rules the world. And it's those Roman values that allow us to rule. The, the, what was certainly in the Republican age, the sense of values, by the time we get to empire, those values start to get more and more lost, which is how the empire ends up collapsing yeah. under itself. So anyhow, uh, Dryden uh, has an introduction to every book. And in book one, and he calls it the argument, uh, meaning the introduction, or the, uh, not introduction, but overview of that chapter. And, th and it's got uh, sacred numbers in it. So he says, the Trojans, after seven years, seven being a sacred number, seven years void, set sail for Italy, but are overtaken by a dreadful storm, which Aeolus. Now, Aeolus is the Greek god of the winds, so he controls winds and, and can create storms at sea, uh, but are overtaken by a dreadful storm which Aeolus raises at Juno's request. Now, Juno uh, is the Roman equivalent of Hera, the queen of the gods. Oh, well, you know, it might be good uh, once you once you go through this section. Let's we'll give the listener a listing of the Roman and Greek names of the gods. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing I thought was interesting too is Aeolus is in the Odyssey is helpful, uh, and in this it's the opposite. So I thought that yeah. was also very interesting. Yeah, because that, the that's Odyssey. A good, yeah, that's a good good point. So um, he says the tempest sinks one ship and scatters the rest. Neptune. You know, the god of the sea drives off the winds and calms the sea. Aeneas, with his own ship and six more, in other words, seven ships, arrives safe at an African port. Venus, you know, the goddess of love, 
complains to Jupiter, the king of the gods, of her son's misfortune, and her son is Aeneas. So supposedly Aeneas's mother was Venus, the goddess and, of love. And also through Aeneas, people like Caesar claimed descent from Venus. That was a real big thing yeah. for some of the Romans, that they were descended from Venus, and particularly Caesar would talk about that. Julius Caesar. So uh, he goes on, Jupiter comforts her and sends Mercury, uh, who is the uh, messenger of the gods, uh, to procure him a kind reception among the Carthaginians. In other words, um, Aeneas and his uh, men, uh, people, uh, arrive at Carthage which is a Phoenician, major Phoenician city on North Africa. Aeneas going out to discover the country meets his mother in the shape of a huntress who conveys him in a cloud to Carthage where he sees his friends whom he thought lost and receives a kind entertainment from the queen Dido by a device of Venus. By a device of Venus begins to have passion for him and after some discourse with him, desires the history of his adventures since the siege of Troy, which is the subject of the two following books. Sorry, so, I was, I was muted there. Was a major rival to uh, Rome when Rome developed. Let's let's at this point, Gary. Let's talk about that. Let's give the listener some uh, vantage point, so uh, where they're looking for so. Carthage was the great rival of Rome, and we know it from Hannibal, we know the Punic Wars. Carthage must be destroyed is a, is a phrase we even know till today, because what Rome did, they had such epic battles, First Punic War, Second Punic War, such epic wars with this, with this um, existential rival, literally existential rival. They're battling for who will be the empire that that really bequeaths the world, the Western world in our case, that uh, in the case of Rome, its future. And so Rome decides finally after it's, after it's defeated Hannibal and defeated its rebels, it is not only going to defeat Carthage, it's going to destroy it. They salt it under. They yeah. literally take the city and salt it into the ground so that they could never rise back up. Now there are colonies settled there and all kinds of stuff thereabouts, but that empire, that was, they wiped it off the map. Uh, and so Carthage, now going further back, is a Phoenician colony. So Phoenicia, they're, they're uh, Middle Eastern, they're from Lebanon, is basically where Phoenicia would have been. They were known as great seafarers. They were fantastic seafarers. And, and, and traders. And mm -hmm. traders, thereby traders. So yeah. that was one of the things that happened. So when they established the Carthaginian colony, it's interesting in book one of the Aeneid, they give the reason for the establishment as the, you know, their people didn't want to, uh, there was a, an, an unkind king, an unkind leader, and so they had to get away. But be that as it may, Carthage, which established as a colony, it too was a great trading colony and seafaring colony, but it was also, as is alluded to in the Aeneid, a great war, their warrior culture. They could fight. We know Hannibal to this day. Hannibal, of course, the great, Carthaginian general who took elephants over the Alps and just harried and attacked Rome for years. So yeah, so for three Carthage years was that, that was uh, yes. So Carthage was that for people 
Uh, so that's the that's the context. Okay, so that's so he so it's interesting that you get this future founder of Rome landing on Carthaginian shores. Okay, now the next thing, Gary, let's tell them the Greek and Roman gods. Can we do that? Let's just give them a little. Um, here's well, who we can they both are. do it. Um, yeah. Uh, so Juno the, is the, the king. The king of um, the gods uh, who ruled on Mount Olympus, according to the Greeks, was Zeus. Uh, and his uh, Roman equivalent was Jove. Now, the person, the goddess, his wife, that in the Greek pantheon was Hera, who I have a little special uh, thing about, and I think that she uh, certainly gets shortchanged by the Greeks, but uh, she's Juno in the Roman pantheon. But the important thing here, too, is we have to remember, and Gary, you, you, we talked about this when we did uh, the Iliad, you know, the judgment of Paris. Paris, the the um, Trojan prince, was given the was was given the unenviable task of having to choose the most beautiful of the goddesses. And we'll and three goddesses. Three goddesses. So we had number three uh, being sacred, of course. And um, right. Uh, so so was, we had Aphrodite, who is Venus in Roman. We have Athena, who is Minerva in the Roman world, and we have Hera, who is Juno. Yeah. And so he chose Venus. By the way, I I hadn't wasn't familiar with this other appellation for Venus, Cytheria, goddess of love. That's used a lot in the uh, in the Aeneid. So she, Venus is also Cytheria in the Aeneid. So he chooses Venus, and as his prize, he gets Helen. That's what he wanted. And of course, we all know what happens because of that. The the, the yeah. world explodes. Yeah, the so, Trojan War. The Trojan War, which yeah. is the most famous of the ancient. Wars and history. Yeah. Without question, yeah. And so Hera doesn't quite forgive him for that. Or Juno, because we're using the Roman terms in this when we talk about this epic. Juno is still ticked off. And that's sort of the beginning of this book one. She's just giving him the business because she wants him to suffer and she gets storms and the god of the wind, you know, to, to you know uh, wreak havoc with them. So that's there. So we have Juno, Jove. We have, uh, so Juno is Hera. Jove is Zeus, Venus is Aphrodite, Minerva is Athena, or Pallas, as they sometimes say in here. Yeah, he uses um, uh, Pallas. He uses Pallas. That's yeah. you know, another name for uh, yeah, Athena. He uses Pallas. Um, P-A-L-L-A-S, by the way. Not, not, not yes, as, exactly, not P-A-L-A-S. Not, not as in the uh, yeah. throne room. Uh, yes, exactly. Good, good point. Uh we hear Neptune, uh, who comes out in this story, and we and I love the kind of the imagery of the horses and the chariot. But Neptune is Poseidon in the Greek world, so Poseidon also came up in the Odyssey. So we have Neptune. Um, they mention Saturn, which I think was interesting because did you know the daughter of Saturn? And Saturn is Kronos, uh, the older gods, the Titans from yeah. the Greek pantheon. Uh, and just to round it all out, so we know uh, Mars, we know, is the god of war. He's Ares in the Greek pantheon. And Mars is actually more famous, actually. There's certain, certain of the Roman names are more famous and some of the Greek names are more famous. And then you have uh, Hermes, the messenger of the gods, mm -hmm. uh, who the Romans called Mercury. Mm -hmm. And Vulcan is the Roman name for Hephaestus. So Vulcan and Mercury and Mars, we're all more familiar with uh, one for science fiction reasons. 
Uh, I think Venus as well is probably the more familiar name. I think Athena is certainly more familiar than Minerva, uh, Minerva and Pallas. Yeah. Uh, Neptune and Poseidon, that's kind of you know, even, 50-50. I think people know both of those uh, yeah. pretty well. Saturn is definitely more famous than Kronos, but I think Zeus is far more famous than Jove. Yeah. Juno and Hera may also be 50-50. Hera is probably much more familiar. I think, you know what? Hera is more familiar, but Juno does come up a little bit. So anyway, there you go. There's your Roman and Greek main deities that have come up thus far or will come up. Um, all right. Uh, what more on the first book, Gary? What's your sense? Well, basically, of? he's talking about the arrival of uh, Aeneas and his seven ships after a seven-year voyage. How about that? You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> emphasizing that sacred number. The sacred numbers you that you you bring back. And for the listener, we have an episode on the sacred numbers. I may put it back up again just so people can hear it and just remember and have the context of what's going on uh, for this. Um, I loved, I wanted to bring up, so, okay, let's, let's finish what happens in the story. So he arrives on Carthaginian shores looking for safe harbor after being harried by the, the attacks of uh, Hera, of Juno, I can't believe I'm using the Greek words, of Juno. Uh, so he, he gets safe harbor. His mother, Venus, helps him find safe harbor, asks for help from Jove to just, you know, look after him. And, uh, and sort of we end that chapter where, like you say, Queen Dido, the Carthaginian queen, is, you know, we're being put in a position of falling for being attached to Aeneas. Uh, I was interesting that they point out that his mother, uh, Venus, brought that about because she was worried that Hera would come up with some plan to make perhaps, at least as I read it, perhaps Dido change her mind at some point. So she wanted something to kind of bond, you know, so that they would be bound in some sense and he would be protected. I mean, I, let's, there's a couple of lines in there too. I think of like, he just is harried um, and he just wonders. I mean, this happens. We, we see this in, in the Odyssey as well. These, these heroes who are just beset by the gods. I mean, we, it's so modern. We're so, this is why I always get annoyed when I hear scholars act as if ancient people were somehow this different species. We're all humans. We have the same kinds of experiences. And so we, we often wonder when we go through hard periods, as many of us have gone through, where it just seems that one thing after another, after another, it just doesn't stop. When you get something, something's taken away. You get something else, something's taken away, and another thing happens. And it's like, why are the gods punishing me? is what a person might say. And you yeah, hear Aeneas say that, and Odysseus say it, of course. Yeah, and, and uh, in the first chapter, Aeneas uh, mentions that, um, you, know, you know, the first half, so to speak, is based on the uh, Odyssey. The, the last six books are based on the Iliad, like I said before. But in the first chapter, he uh, Aeneas relates how uh, he passed by quote, the rocks of uh, Scylla or Scylla, who was a monster. And Scylla and Charybdis are uh, one of the uh, stops, as it were, of uh, Odysseus on his way home. Scylla being a six-headed monster that comes out of a or cave in a cliff to attack Odysseus' ship. And, uh, and the other being a huge... Uh, 
whirlpool that whirlpool. Sucks ships mm-hmm. down, you know. So Charybdis. And so he says, with me, the rocks of Scylla you have tried, the inhuman cyclops and his den defied. The cyclops being the one-eyed monster, you know, that uh, this is uh, had to encounter in this cave, you know. Uh, another thing that I thought was interesting that I think Virgil brings out more than Homer is when we talk about when the gods or goddesses reveal, reveal or don't reveal themselves to our particular protagonist. And in this case, Venus, the goddess, is the mother of the protagonist, and she appears in maiden form to him. And then he sees her for who she is, and, and he says, Why do you mock your son so often and so cruelly with these lying apparitions? Why can't I ever join you hand to hand to hear, to answer you with honest words? I just think that's such a very human kind of response, because obviously it's mothers of goddess, she's an immortal, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult uh, connection to make, of course, for a human, and he is mortal, so, um, but I, it's a very real feeling. The other thing I thought in this chapter, in this book, uh, the first book for Virgil, I thought he, in many ways, he is even more cinematic, modern cinematic than Homer, in the sense of he gives dialogue in the in the manner that you give dialogue in a lot of uh, screenplays. You know, it's, it's this person says this, then this person says it, then this person. So he gives like, you know, it's sort of like scene direction and then dialogue. And it's I think that's really interesting in terms of how he writes, how he approaches this. Um, I also liked something else in the chapter that I really want to highlight. And one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is the epic cycle. And the fact that we have lost so many works in the epic cycle. Now, at the time, of course, that um, Virgil was writing it, those works were not lost. And so all the books of the epic cycle were still available to be read. And one of the things that happens in the epic cycles, when we talk about the Trojan War, the epic cycle, of course, is about the Trojan War and the events surrounding the Trojan War before and after, is um, there are elements of it, particularly about the Amazons, which we don't have anymore. Uh, hopefully someday, big dream that we'll find it. But let me just read this passage. I liked this. Uh, you should define epic cycle. And... Yeah, I just said it's the it's the stories, the the series of works around the. Yeah, I know, Trojan... but they're by different authors. They're not by one author. Right, right. They're they're different works by different authors, and they're all and they're based different... on Homer. Yes, and they're all they're all based around this story of the Trojan War. So, um, and some, I mean. They're based on Homer, yes, but there are some aspects of it that they go into that Homer doesn't go into in the same detail. And so there are some other works yeah. that they may be drawing on. And in this case, about the Amazons, um, I love this line in, in the Indian. So this is in book one. He says, three times Achilles had dragged Hector round the walls of Troy, selling his lifeless body for gold. And then indeed, Aeneas groans within the great pit of his chest deeply, for he can see the spoils, the chariot, the very body of his friend, and Priam pleading for Hector with defenseless hands. Now, by the way, he's looking at artwork that's created, these beautiful works that are being created by um, by the uh, by Dido and her people, uh, the Carthaginians. So he says he also recognized himself in combat with the Achaean chiefs, and then saw the eastern battalions and the weapons of the black Memnon. Memnon was a black warrior king from Ethiopia. 
Penthesilia, no, this is where, where we get to the Amazon. Penthesilia, in her fury, leads the ranks of crescent-shielded Amazons. She flashes through her thousands, underneath her naked breast a golden girdle, soldier, virgin, and queen, daring to war with men. What a great image. And It's an image we don't get to see because we don't have some of those epic cycle works. So there's little tantalizing bits in this uh, in this to read the Aeneid is to pick up some stuff that, you know, Homer sets the template for everything. But then there were other things that come out from there that we don't still have. And that's one of them, some of those of the epic cycle. Well, anything in, in closing, Gary, that you want to leave our listeners Well, he with? also introduces uh, Romulus and Remus. Oh, good point. Yes, that's absolutely yeah. vital. Um, and uh, and he says, um, uh, shall I birth two goodly boys disclose the royal babes the tawny wolf shall drain? Then Romulus, his grandsire, throne shall gain. Of Marshall's towers, the founder shall become the people Romans call the city Rome. So he's talking about that, that myth of the two boys who are uh, uh, suckled by a wolf. And the founders of Rome. So it's sort of like Aeneas is the, the great, great, great ancestor of the, the people, the two that people think of as the founders of Rome, that the Romans thought of as the founders of Rome themselves. Um, so, yeah, Virgil gets that. He gets the structure. He talks about, I mean, he sets in that first chapter for the listener. So we've got, we're set up with uh, Aeneas is fleeing the, the fallen Troy. He's at sea. He wrecked out of the anger of Juno. Uh, he lands on Carthaginian shores. His mother, Venus, helps him, helps save him, helps bring him there, and, and implores Jove to help bring him there. And by the end of the chapter, he sees that they're building Carthage. They have these great craftsmen and artisans. They're building Carthage. They're led by their queen, Dido. And there is an incipient connection happening between the two of them. Uh, and we learn also in this chapter about the founding of Rome, the location, the peoples that were, that the Romans saw themselves as being descended, from whom the Romans saw themselves being descent, as being descended. And we hear now the beginning, the first, you know, little twinklings, little inklings of the story of how they came about as a people. So... On that note, I'd like to thank the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. My name is Sean Marlon Newcomb. This has been the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel Classical Studies 101. We are starting the Aeneid. This was book one. Thank you all for listening, and God bless.